0: Maybe. Not that one. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm Do you want me to sing the soprano part, the melody to that, or sing the one? harmony,
1: that first song? Galatians 2 Galatians 2 When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I
0: love verse 7 there. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised or to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel, to the circumcised. On Tuesday of this week, there was a basketball game that was played, and I committed myself that whether it was a bird or a cat, I would wear the colors of the winning team in the Sunflower Showdown. Now, many of you may be thinking that after yesterday, neither KU nor K-State deserves to have their colors worn. But I did this for an intentional reason, because we are going to be talking this morning about how do we view those who may be different from us, but we are all in the body of Christ. There are some people who would see this shirt and tie and say, yay, he loves the people that I love. There are others who see this shirt and tie and say, yes, there are lost people in Lawrence who need Jesus Christ. If I were to wear a purple shirt, there would be some who would say, yes, he loves who I love. And others who would say, yes, there are people in Manhattan that need to repent and accept Jesus Christ. See, we're all Kansans together. So we learn to like those who like those who are different from us. Unless, see, see, I did not attend college in Kansas, so I can get by with wearing either color and offending everybody, and, and there's really no allegiance. There are some in our number who, apart from co- collegiate sports, they're fans of teams other than the red and gold. I speak of one who is in our number that loves a team that turned their back on God. They used to have a hole in the roof of their stadium so that God could watch the games. And then they moved into at and Stadium. They turned their back on God. Hence, they are not playing next week. So regardless of what team you love, where your allegiance lies, the reality is, is that Peter and Paul were able to say, that's fine, you were called to these people, I was called to these people, I hope you do great over there, and I hope you do great over there. But they were able to work together as those who were all one in the body of Christ. Last week we concluded chapter 1 of this epistle that is in front of us. And I said then that your truth and my truth do not matter. What matters is the truth. But this week, as we turn to chapter 2, that statement gets refined a little. The first 10 verses of chapter 2 teach us that what matters is My perception of the truth, the proud arrogance of youth and the stubborn pride of age can lead us to a lifestyle where we simply say, you do you and I'll do me. But experience has taught me over these years that we is greater than me. I have intentionally incorporated illustrations about food in recent weeks because that interests both men and women. Last week, I spoke of wrestling, basketball, and volleyball as all sports that are influenced by their coaching philosophy or the coach's midrash. I purposefully did not mention the sport that I follow, Until after the benediction. Because I wish to keep the worship of God preeminent in our services over the worship of particular athletes. But I did notice something during a game that was played last Sunday evening. While the press overplayed the competition between two quarterbacks... The team that won realized that in a team sport, the whole team contributes. Players who the fans wanted to trade in the middle of the season came through in clutch plays. Rookies who were playing their first conference championship contributed at key moments. And after the game, both Mahomes and Kelsey attributed their success to the work of athletic trainers and a chiropractor who put them in a position to participate. Just as a team in any sport only wins with contributions from the bench and the locker room, Our Christian mission only flourishes when we can get past the arrogance and the stubbornness of self. I become a better follower of Christ when I say we are following Christ together. I notice in verses 1 through 3 that our Christian mission requires that we depend upon one another and that we move with confidence. I kind of got the idea that Paul has a trust but verify opinion towards visions. Look at Acts chapter 9 verse 3. Paul says, I had a vision of Christ himself. But then if you look, In verse 17, he says, but God sent somebody else to confirm the vision that I received. Saul's spectacular vision was not spread around to others until God verified the vision three days later by sending Simeon to prophesy and recover Paul's sight. Oftentimes we get a vision or a dream or an impression and we like to say, well, God told me that I should, or God told me that we should. Occasionally I get um, emails of Christian pickup lines. My favorite is the one person who introduces himself with, God told me that you're going to be my girl. And the wise lady replies, not until I get the same vision. See, Paul had a trust but verify attitude when it came to visions. And while a vision may be a personal motivator or effective in fundraising stories as we build a 90-foot set of praying hands, A paranormal experience has no authority on another person until that person can confirm the vision. Paul had a revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says now he has a second revelation, but he withholds the authority of that vision until it is confirmed. He got a, a prompting, he got a revelation that says, Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem and make sure that what you are saying is consistent with the rest of the apostles. And before Paul acted on this revelation, he asked Barnabas and Timothy. He said, do you think we ought to go up to Jerusalem? So we read there that Barnabas and Timothy went with Saul to Jerusalem. And then when he got there, they talked with Peter or Cephas, they talked with James and they talked with John. And when the meeting was all done, the brothers in Jerusalem says, Paul, we pat you on the back and we send you forth as, your, as a missionary to the Gentiles. We can be in this together and we send you to those who are uncircumcised just as God has called us to minister to the circumcised. See, they each had their own team and they did not allow their impressions or their visions about their team to ostracize those who were on the team but playing for the other side. I notice here that as Paul is coming to Jerusalem, he, he's engaging himself with the disciples because God is giving him confidence in his message. If you have ever acted upon a dream or upon a vision, there was probably some, well, I don't know if this was from God or I'm not sure this is from God. and And, and there was probably at least subconsciously, or at least silently, some hesitation to act on it. But I see here that Paul actually gained confidence in his ministry by seeking the opinion of co-laborers and by seeking the feedback from those that he mentored as they were his apprentices. In Acts chapter 9, verse 27, we are first introduced to Barnabas. And Barnabas is with Paul as he takes this trip at the beginning of Galatians 2. We also see in Acts chapter 15 that later, Paul, as he was traveling, he went with a man by the name of Silas. See, Paul did not do solo ministry. He always went with somebody who was his encourager. And we need encouragers to come alongside. Whether it's Moses in the Old Testament who needed Aaron and her to prop up his elbows so that he could lead the people to victory. Or whether it's Paul choosing Barnabas and John Mark and then later choosing Silas to travel with him. He had co-laborers who encouraged him. I also see that Paul chose Timothy, Acts chapter 16, verse 3, and Titus, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, as his apprentices. He had those who were his partners, and he had those that he was pouring himself into, and we also see here that he had those that he sought their approval. Now, last week, we found out that Paul's ministry did not come out of some sort of a backroom deal where the apostles told Paul, now, this is what you can say and this is what you can't say. So it wasn't a man's gospel. God had revealed to Paul what he needed to say. But here, 14 years later, Paul says, well, maybe I ought to get the feedback from those who have been in authority before me. Maybe I ought to let them weigh in just to make sure that I haven't gone astray. Just to make sure that I'm not wasting my time. Let me go back to the authorities and see what they say. Now the reason that Paul does this is Paul realizes that the gospel that he's preaching affects real life people. And if the Faith that you hold to does not affect real-life people. It's a pretty shallow faith. But Paul realized there would be discouragement, and he needed friends. And he was going to pour himself into the next generation so that they could continue after his time was done. These were real-life friends, real-life apprentices. Now, I know that I am reading between the lines when I, when I consider what was Barnabas' role in this whole event, all Paul says is that Barnabas came along with me. But it doesn't say why Barnabas was there. It doesn't say who started. I, I kind of, again, reading between the lines, and, and so this is Pastor Dave, it's not the Holy Spirit of God. I sense that Paul had this revelation and Paul thought, God might want me to check with the authority that's be just to kind of get their endorsement, just to give me more confidence in what I'm doing, that I'm doing it the right way. And I kind of think that Barnabas may have weighed in on that decision by Barnabas saying to Paul, Hey, Paul, go check with the Jerusalem brothers. What can it hurt? Because Barnabas was one who defended Paul among the brothers. See, they knew Paul as the guy who was killing him. and they wanted to have nothing to do with that guy who was against them, but Barnabas says, "Hey, come on, guys, it would be worth listening to what he has to say." And so Barnabas is kind of a mediator, and he brings the brother says, "Listen to Paul, give him a chance." And because he did that with Paul, I kind of think he may be doing the same thing on the other side. As he tells Paul, Paul, don't disregard the Jerusalem brothers. Listen to what they have to say. What could it hurt for you to go to Jerusalem? So I believe that's exactly what happens here. And I get, get this sense because Paul is taking a risk to listen to those who we will see later seem to be pillars of the church he's not listening to everybody but those who were the pillars he listened to and when we can listen to the pillars of faith it increases our confidence see what he says in chapter 2 verse 2 the whole reason i'm going to listen to these guys is to make sure that i'm not spinning my wheels Because they were a people who had established authority. And Paul recognized Peter, James, and John as those who were established as pillars. Now, I enjoy watching westerns on television. Living here in the Flint Hills has really helped me to imagine what actually happened on the cattle drives. Or on the Santa Fe Trail. And one of the things I've noticed as I watch Westerns is that there were two types of authority. The sheriff and the federal marshal or the magistrate. See, the sheriff pretty much ran the town the way he saw fit. But before he could do a hanging, it required a ruling from the marshal or a magistrate to ensure that the sheriff isn't just being vengeful against an individual. And I sense that's kind of what's happening here with Paul in Jerusalem. Paul was the sheriff. He was preaching the gospel that God had given him. But when it came time to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, he wanted to check with the federal magistrate and just make sure that he had not gone off reservation. Jerusalem is where Pentecost, birth, The church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem to find the established leaders to get them to rule on the way he saw things. Even though Paul has been the sheriff wherever he went on missionary journeys, and he started churches, after doing this church planting sheriff work for 14 years he chose to make sure of his understanding by conferring with the original, more experienced authority. And while these early verses all tell us that Paul valued unity and agreement with the larger fellowship, the next verses reveal that he was not going to commit himself to a unity at any cost. Because our Christian mission requires that we stand independent from distractions. There are some of you who would consider a red shirt and a blue necktie a distraction from who you are as a person. And if I were wearing a purple shirt, you would look at that and you would consider that a distraction. And while Paul was pursuing the authority of the apostles in Jerusalem to endorse his ministry, he was not going to say, I'm willing to do whatever anybody and everybody says I ought to do. Because he remained independent from that which was a distraction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there were people in the area who had false appearances. People who thought they were impressive. And because they thought they were impressive, since they thought they were the social media influencers, they thought they could tell Paul what Paul needed to do. Galatians 1 has repeatedly told us that any other gospel is no gospel and must be resisted. Chapter 2 tells us that the false brothers who had a secret agenda would not be allowed to malign the true gospel even for a moment. That's a great phrase to underline there. There were some who were self-important. But the truth of the gospel is at stake. And so Paul says, I won't allow them even for a moment to distract me from the true gospel. Each of the historic councils, Jerusalem, two at Nicaea, Constantinople three times, Ephesus and Chalcedon, all of the historic councils of Christianity were called together because... Falsehood was being spread, and the leadership of churches wanted to make sure that we return to the pure, true gospel. Throughout history, there have been distractions, and leaders say, let's get back to what is most important. And these councils that shaped what is now called orthodoxy, right belief, defines what is true Christianity and what was deviant Christianity. And we still have today people who call what they believe Christianity, but it disagrees with what the Word of God says. So just as Paul submitted his vision, I had this vision, but Simeon confirmed it, and then I had another vision, and Barnabas confirmed it, and when I came to Jerusalem... Uh, Peter, James, and John all verified what I had been doing. Paul submitted his visions to confirmation by others. A very wise believer will avoid an all I need is the Bible and the Holy Ghost attitude. Paul listened to others, and today we get people say, Hey, I read my Bible and the Holy Spirit tells me what it means. And we disregard the fact that the, that same Holy Spirit speaks through others. And so Paul waited to have the Holy Spirit who was speaking to him also speak through others to verify, to confirm the authority. Because the truth of the gospel is at stake. And we can't allow false ideas to creep in. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, what's most important is not what these false social media influencers think. What matters most of all is God's perspective. Is God pleased with what I say? And if God is pleased with what I say, God will use His Spirit to encourage me through others who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. See, verses 6 and verse 9 describe two different appearances. In verse 6, we read about those who appear to be influencers. In verse 9, we read about those who appear to be pillars. In verse 6, it's those who wanted to be seen by others as exerting influencers. Those who were getting the likes and the follows and the tweets. Those who were getting the fans that said, we care what you say. And they would tear down others just to gain likes and followers. They thought they were influencers and they were willing to tear Paul to shreds if it would increase. Their follower count. See, that's one set of appearances. But verse 9 uses a different word to describe not those who tear down by criticism, but they're actually pillars of the faith. They are pillars of the spiritual house that God is building. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. See, there are some people who they think they're influencers and they become critical and they tear down everything. And contrasted to those who are influencers, who are critical, he says, but there was another group of people. They're pillars. They supported the faith. And because they support the faith that God is building, he sought their feedback to them. Verse 6 is telling us no matter how important a person thinks he or she is, God is not impressed with your appearances. He's not impressed by your follower count. Because pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. And so those who were so worried about their like count stood in contrast to those who wisely supported what God was doing. The whole scene in the early chapters of Exodus tells us of a Pharaoh who thought he was important, yet he would not submit to the instructions of God. Two weeks ago, a proud defender named Mike Milton disrespectfully referred to Kansas City Stadium as Burrowhead. Did you watch Milton in the game last week? Every single pass that was passed to a receiver that he was defending, every single pass was completed. See, Milton had that arrogance and the pride, and he thought he could disrespect, but pride goes before a fall. So rather than try to be glitchy and and, and snappy in in all of our words so that everybody thinks, Oh, what a cute little clever thing he said. On the other hand, There are those who contribute to the genuine success of the team. Those are the pillars. See, Milton's mouth acted as if he was important. But success happens when we disregard the distractions and we focus on the truth. And finally, I see in verses 7-10 through that our Christian mission requires interdependence. He was dependent upon the testimony of the authority to affirm him. He was dependent upon peers and upon apprentices that he was pouring into. He was independent from those who would distract. But finally, we see here in verses 7 through 10, there's an interdependence. There's an interdependence where Peter, James and John said, Man, God bless you. Keep going to the Gentiles. We'll extend our right hand to fellowship. We'll pat you on the back. Everything that we have, we want to say, you keep doing that. That's a great thing. At the same time, God has called us to reach these people in this way. And I see a beautiful interdependence in verses 7 through 10. See, the pillars who had endorsed his direction of ministry. We've already seen the difference between influencers who destroy and pillars who support. Verse 9 in front of us uses an idiom that only appears here in all of the New Testament. There's nowhere else that we see extend the right hand. But Paul uses this idiom, extended the right hand, to say that... Peter, James, and John, Jesus's inter three, they agreed that Paul was preaching the true gospel and that he could be sure of what he was doing and that he was not spinning his wheels or acting in vain. That's an interdependence. Peter, James, and John did not say, Well, we're going to keep doing, we're going to start doing what you're doing. They simply said, what you're doing is right. Keep doing it. It, it. it was that I'm proud of you moment. That keep doing what you're doing. It's a good work. These pillars endorsed it. Because there were different audiences who needed different styles. Cooperating people reached different audiences with different styles, but the same truth. We have a ministry partner who lives in Lawrence and is proclaiming Jesus Christ on that stadium. We have a different ministry partner who lives in Manhattan and is proclaiming Christ and reaching those people. They're not at conflict with one another. We aren't betraying any kind of allegiance by faithfully supporting people in both places. Because different audiences need different styles, but they all need Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 clearly tells us that Peter and Paul respected one another, and he, they respected their, both their call to ministry and the way they did their ministry. I rejoice when I see fellow Christians doing ministry in areas that I'm not personally passionate I love that God places a passion for young children on some people. I'm pleased that God calls some people to focus on the homeless. I'm enthralled when I hear of Bible translators and those who present Christ to prisoners. Young children, homeless, those who speak different languages, those in prison, those aren't necessarily my wheelhouse as the center of my compassion. But I overflow with joy that God is calling some of us to go into those very areas and to present Christ. Just this week, I ordered Spanish booklets that can be given away free of charge in our county jail. I'm not gifted with the experience to coach athletics, but I will be your biggest cheerleader to use sports to reach athletes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, a different passion does not mean that we're preaching a different gospel. And Paul and Peter were able to say, God bless you, keep doing it. I'm not going to do that. But I'm not going to stop you from doing that either. Because Jesus needs to be proclaimed to all. And finally, verse 10, he simply says, remember the poor. The language that Paul used to write this letter has six different words for poverty. Everything from a destitute beggar to simply someone who was not independently wealthy and they had to work in order to eat. And the the word that Paul uses here in the middle of those six choices is simply, there are some people who don't have what you have. And so the Jews told Paul, remember, not everybody has the same blessing that you have. Remember the poor. Those who don't have. And he simply says, "That man, that's what I was pleased to do. Every moment of my life is lived with the remembrance that there are some people who don't have the forgiveness of Jesus. There are some people who do not have the hope of eternity. There are some people who do not have the comfort of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. So I will live each moment of my life so that those who don't have what I have can get what God has given to me. He says that's the very thing that shapes Paul's mission. So I believe Galatians chapter 2 speaks to those of us seated in this room. Because there are people around us who do not have what God has entrusted to us. Do we remember them or do we ignore them? How do these verses impact us right here, right now? The first is, we must exercise dependence upon others to affirm our beliefs. To make sure that none of us go off the reservation, we need others within the body of Christ to affirm us, which gives us confidence in our message. Secondly, we must remain independent from distractions. And thirdly, we must stay in our lane of interdependence. What, What was it that became popular this week? Know your role and shut your mouth. See, we, we must stay in our lane where we interdepend upon others. Know your role. Stay in your lane to faithfully live out the passion and the compassion that God places in each of us until all have heard. Our final song this morning. As Sister Jean comes to play for us, it's simply a personal commitment to live as the community of believers so that we can proclaim Christ to a community that needs Him. To live dependent upon each other, independent from distractions, interdependent as we